Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Live from Las Vegas, it's time for you to be Talking Movies with America's most award-winning film critic, John Barber. You're being, John, you're being so gentle. I've heard you give reviews and you're so rough, you're saying. <laughs> How would you have evaluated your own work uh, in some of the films that you did prior to, uh, <laughs> prior to The Longest Shot? I mean, Much like... better than you, my friend. <laughs> Our next guest is one of those rare talents who has something to say and can say it funny. He's a writer-performer on the new Laugh-In and one of the most popular, outspoken, and entertaining personalities on the local news here in Los Angeles. He's won a half a dozen Emmys as a film critic and host of his own shows. Let's welcome Mr. John Barber, right over there. Welcome to show number three of Talking Movies. Doug, how are you today? I'm doing very well. Hi, John. Well, you know, the last time we chatted when we introduced actor Mike Farrell and I asked you, had you been interested in acting? And you said, not so much, but you were interested in singing. So what I'd like to know is, do you have any kind of brief recording? Because a number of people have asked me to hear if your singing voice is as good as your speaking voice. So... Do you have 20 or 30 seconds of something recorded that we could listen to? I wish I did. Sadly, I lost all of my stuff uh, in the Paradise Campfires. I don't even have a picture my mom left. Oh, all God, of my that stuff is so that I've ever well, kept. Oh, my yeah. God, that's so horrible. Well, you, you must do me a favor and our listeners a favor when you and Don are better situated I want you to take a Saturday night off and I want you to go to the karaoke place and I want you to record something that you would love to sing and give us a brief clip so we can play it for the audience the other thing is that we talked about is uh, my days as a as a, an ambitious but failed actor and that as a critic I had turned down a number of uh, roles in movies, which I sort of regretting doing because it was a conflict of interest, sort of a very outmoded phrase in America these days. But I got calls from notes from people that said they had seen me co-starring with Tim Conway in a CSI, which is true. And they'd seen me in a small part in Breaking Bad, which is true, but that all happened after I had stopped being a critic. And I must tell you, while I got paid substantially uh, for being with Tim Conway and starring in CSI, and it was an hour show, I only had a tiny part in Breaking Bad, but I got more feedback and more money and residuals from Breaking Bad than I ever did CSI. But there was one time in 1975 when I was a critic at NBC and LA Magazine that I did accept a movie part. Would you like to hear what that was? I would love that, John, please. Okay. My son was five years of age and he was an absolute Star Trek addict. As a matter of fact, when he was five years of age, he met Bill Shatner, and Bill Shatner was so impressed with how intelligent and smart and informed my five-year-old son was about him and Star Trek, he signed this autographed singing album to my son. And I must say the 10 microphones, wow. the 10 microphones depicted here did not improve the sound of his voice. In any event, the reason I accepted, I got a call from ABC. And they were doing this full-length feature called Pray for the Wildcats. And they wanted me to play William Shatner's boss. 
So I accepted it joyfully because my son could see me with Bill Shatner. And as his boss, I fire him. So anyway, uh, after I fire him, he gets on a motorcycle with a bunch of his friends and they go to Mexico. In any event, when they're getting ready to air the movie, I gather my wife and son on the sofa with some goodies and some drinks and can't wait for his response when he sees this because he doesn't know I've done this. And there I come on. Instead of getting applause and a big smile from my son, he's heartbroken. And you know why? And you know what he said to me? What's that? He said, Dad, how could you fire Captain Kirk? <laughs> so, so I was heartbroken. But anyway, that movie is still floating around somewhere in YouTube heaven and a lot of people have sent me a copy of it. I must tell you, I love actors. And having been a failed one, I was a year at a repertory company called the Castle Theater in England in the early 60s. Uh, And I would have loved to have been an actor and I never made it, but I do love actors. And I especially love the actor and the person and the personality that you're about to meet now. And that's Ed Asner. In uh, 1977, Ed Asner was one of a dozen very prominent people in Hollywood who gathered at Scandia restaurant when Senator Tunney gave me my treasured uh, naturalization papers to become a citizen. And two or three times, do you remember Ted Knight? Remember Ted Knight? He was an absolutely fabulous performer himself. We spent a couple of nights, Ted Knight, Ed Asner, myself, and my wife, at the Magic Castle. And they were absolutely magic moments. I am going to miss him enormously. As you know, on August 24th, we taped the last in-depth interview with Ed Asner. I did not know it at the time, Doug, but he had very serious bladder cancer and was in real pain. And he had agreed uh, to do the interview about two weeks beforehand. And had I known he was ill, I would have canceled the interview. But I found out later that he wouldn't cancel it in spite of the pain that he was in and that he wanted to talk to me once again. And so we did this interview, and when it was announced that I had done the last in-depth interview with Ed Asner, sorry, I'm having a difficult time talking, but when it was announced that I had done that, I got numerous calls to air it immediately. But Doug, I declined. And the reason I declined was the sadness of airing it and seeing it would detract, I felt, from the power of his presence and his performance. So here, for everyone, is Ed Asner's very last in-depth interview. Ed, 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 I cannot thank you enough for being here. Honest to God, it's... Listen, it is a huge honor for me because I got to tell you something. Wikipedia got something wrong about you. They they referred to you as a television legend. Uh You are not a television legend. You are an acting legend. You are an acting giant. You are a social activist legend. well, Well, listen to me. Yeah. You and I would be hard-pressed to find any other actor or actress, living or dead, who has the mountains of monumental good work that you have done and these great awards that you have had. And I'm going to tell you something. You have so much of a magnificent track record. I could not record it. It would take me longer to record your achievements than it would be to count Warren Buffett's money 
one dollar at a time. And there is a guy that you portrayed magnificently about 10 years ago in a wonderful, important film called Too Big to Fail. And I'm going to tell you something about you, Ed. Your talent and your character have proven that you are too big to fail, even in spite of some of the political things that you've gotten involved with. And we're going to get to that a little later. So again. <laughs> So you can call me kid. Anyway, the, th- the thing is, one day they're going to make a movie of your life, Ed. And when they make that movie, they have to go back and they start at the beginning. So let's you and I start at the beginning. Where were you you born? What were your parents like? What did your father do? How many siblings did you have? And what did you want to do as a kid? Did you hear the question? I'll I'll give it to you again. Okay. Where were you born? What were your parents like? What did your father do? Did you have siblings? And what did you want to do as a kid? Uh-huh. I wanted to hold the banks. <laughs> I never big time in those days. Oh my gosh, yes. The big time for holding up banks. Well, they, they were deprived times. Uh, I was born in a Missouri hospital though I lived on the Kansas side of Kansas City. My parents were good, sweet, loving. Uh, My dad was austere. He uh, uh, was, uh, I found out later, he was a two-fisted brawler when necessary. Uh, And I had four siblings, two and two. And what did you want to do as a kid? What do I want to do? Other than rob banks. I wanted to, um, to, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm going to answer that question. I don't know. Well, that would, that will lead us eventually to the business of movies. What kind of work did your father do? He had a junk business. A so you, you were the uh, Jewish version of Sanford and Son. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and and what? So I, my, my father was no Sanford. Oh, okay. Now you have your 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 parents gave you a nickname. It isn't Ed your middle name? No, no. Uh, uh, they named me Eddie because of my dead grandmother, whose name was Etia, and. Uh, uh, from Eddie, they uh, they pulled uh, my Hebrew name, which was Yitzchak, Isaac. Oh, I thought I thought I I thought Yitzchak. I thought Yitzchak was always. I thought it, it was a Hebrew word that was related to laughter or joy or something. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, when when. Uh, when Sarah, I believe, was told that she was pregnant with Isaac, uh, he laughed. And that's what would uh, uh, distinguish her. Uh, living, uh, were, were your parents uh, very orthodox? Yeah. Uh, and did are you orthodox or were you orthodox as a child? I naturally... Uh, well, most Orthodox kids flee as soon as they can. And now, uh, was it was it difficult being a Jewish family in the Depression, living in Kansas? Well, my daddy was the patron, uh, so uh, um, those uh, those in need of him and uh, and the family were always poorer than us. We lived across the streets from the packing house, farmers. Wow. Wow. I saw the blood every day of my life. Oh, my goodness. So you uh, when when did you move? How old were you when you moved? And you moved to Chicago, right? Second grade. And you moved to Chicago? No, 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 no. 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 Where'd you move? We just moved uptown. 
we went to the, the, the middle of the city uh, where all the the uh, well-paid burgers live. The, okay. uh, the decent okay. section of town. Okay, now, I'll, listen, you and I are about the same age. And when I was between the ages of like uh, six and 16, when I left to come to the United States, I used to go to the movie theater by myself all the time. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons I came to America is because of Frank Capra and Jimmy Stewart. Can you remember? Where'd you come from? Toronto. Oh, 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 I was deported from this country twice, <laughs> but in any event, and I got my citizenship in 1977, and it was awarded to me by Senator John Tunney. But I, I want to get to the business of you going when when you were still under nine or years of age, because it was pre television being a monster medium at the time, so it was movie. Can you remember? going to the movies with your family or alone, and what movies do you recall that might have had an impact on you? Well, I'd be dropped off on Saturday, let's say, and I'd see uh, uh, a serial segment. I'd see the news. I'd see a feature, uh, a cartoon, I guess, and the news. Uh, so I'd, I'd go in at about noon. I'd had come out around sundown and then i'd go home and eat dinner with the family did any of those early movies have an impact on you i would say every every movie i ever saw had an impact did, um, well, well were they influential and in probably turning making you uh, giving you desire to become an actor do you remember an actor named edward arnold oh sure Tell us a little about Edward Arnold. Well, he was always the, a good, healthy laugh is what Edward Arnold had. He was always rich. He was never poor. I never saw him poor. <laughs> well, the wonderful, the reason I bring that up, you know, when I was a kid, of course, I'm going to the movies, and I loved Bogart and Jimmy Cagney, and I loved Jimmy Stewart, and I loved Cary Grant. But I was just enamored by this guy, Edward Arnold. He never seemed to be a star. But every film he was in, and they were all black and white films in those days, he was the linchpin that held it together. He had this physical presence, and he had this beautiful, that beautiful speaking voice. Yeah. And, Ed, I never saw that again in an actor until you. Whoa. I'll take that as a tribute. Well, it is because a lot of the things that I've seen you in over the years, whether it's comedy or drama, and it's especially relevant as Lou Grant with Mary, Mary Tyler Moore. I mean, without you, there is no real foundation for that for that show. But well, you, when did you go to Chicago? Because I read somewhere that you helped found, I think it was called the Compass Theater. Well, that, that came later. I uh, I was um, with uh, a group in Chicago of uh, experimental actors and directors and writers, and um, I I went and I, I you scattered me, John. I don't even remember the name of that group now. Uh, but we we I came to Chicago, and it was a bunch of uh, University of Chicago exiles, and uh, they they had a, a theater on the near north side in an old uh, 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 cigar store. Uh, we were on the second floor, and uh, we seated about 180 people, and there were rooms flanking the audience section, and uh, Ah, uh, one of them became my bedroom. Oh my goodness! Yeah, yeah, I slept in that theater. Well, it, what prompted you, Ed, to become an actor, and how did your uh, family and parents react to the fact that their their Yitzhak was going to become an actor? I never, I never, uh, I never got any opposition to being an actor. Uh, 
I went to the University of Chicago and uh, because I was accepted <laughs> and uh, uh, my um, I had a roommate who um, encouraged me to join the uh, radio group that was in the, uh, the residency halls that they were forming. Uh, he said I should try for anything I, should, I could because I had a good voice. So I, uh, I ended up being the Duke of York on a production of uh, um, uh, Richard II. Oh, wow. Uh, or, uh, I think it was Richard II. Anyway, uh, he came bustling home one day and he said, uh, listen, uh, they're going to do Murder in the Cathedral as their spring play. And you can do any of the roles you want to try out for. I tried out for it, and I ended up doing the lead. How wonderful. Um, beautiful verse. Beautiful. Uh, you were also connected with Second City, which, yeah. became, which became famous sort of as a comedy troupe. Were you there when Mike Nichols and Elaine May were there? Yeah, they, they started working with me in, in the Tonight Eight Thirty group. That we all belong to, and uh, they graduated into uh, what was the name? Mike Nichols and Elaine May. It's Compass. Compass. Uh, yeah, Second City. Compass. What? Yeah, it's Second City, and they went to New York, and they were fortunate enough to meet a fellow named Jack Rollins, who was probably the best manager in the business, and they yeah. wanted to become. Nichols and May. Now, when did you move to New York? I moved to New York after two years at at, at the theater. Uh, they were going more into improv, and I wasn't that interested in improv. So I decided to take my reviews from the Chicago Sun-Times and the Chicago Daily News and run to New York and flaunt my reviews. <laughs> Uh, you know, I it's it's always interesting because I uh, I talked to Mike Farrell the other day and he was talking about his early confrontations with some agents that didn't work out too well. When I see a lot of very famous, successful actors and actresses on camera talking, they never mention an agent or a manager, somebody who might have been important in helping their career, and I know there wouldn't have been a Woody Allen or Nichols and May without Jack Rollins, okay? Or even a Harry Belafonte. You get to New York. Do you try to find work on your own, or do you try to find an agent, and were you successful? On my own. I, I decided to uh, attack New York and learn it geographically so that I took my reviews and blocked out a certain area each day and made the rounds, the producers and agents, and presented my reviews and expected them to fall into the wastebasket as soon as I left. <laughs> they did. And uh, uh, I never got any jobs other than promise of a one-nighter at the Phoenix Theater. I also went to see Carmen Capalbo and Stanley Chase, who were the producers of Three Penny Opera, which we had done a pirated version of in Chicago. I played Peach in the network. So they thought me fairly audacious and said, well, yeah, right, keep in touch, keep in touch. And they kept in touch and called me uh, at the beginning of December where wherein I was already booked to do the one-nighter at the Phoenix. And they said, well, we want you to, uh, to, to come in and uh, take over one of, the, one of the hoodlums. And I said, oh, damn it. <laughs> committed to this one-nighter. I'll, I'll, I'll give them my nose. And the driver said, no, 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 no. Go ahead and do it. There'll be other openings. And there were. And in February, I heard from Carmen again. He treated me like a like a wild animal, I think. 
and uh, said, uh, we need a uh, new Bob saw. So come in. Bob saw understudied Tiger Brown, the police chief. And uh, I started in on on Bob saw and Tiger Brown. I understood Tiger Brown. And Lamb Jenny was the peacher. And we became close. And uh, finally he said that he had given his notice. He was going to tour with a traveling company of uh, that used Russians. And he was going to be a Russian ambassador or something. And I said, oh, damn it. I, was I would have said, because the pizza is my character. And uh, he said, oh, no, 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 I'll delay my giving notice and recommend you to step in as my pizza mundersen, which he did. He's a good man. And uh, I did that. I came in as Peachum, as uh, the understudy, and I did it. Hey, get out of there. <laughs> as an actor, Ed, were you more in, uh, two questions. As an actor, were you more interested in getting on stage on Broadway? Were you more interested? Because at that time, television was just alive with these great great creative playhouses, Studio One, uh, yeah, all of those, and, and movies. What was it that you wanted the most? And was there an actor in film or on Broadway whom you admired a lot? I, I admired them all. They were working. I, I didn't care who they were. As long as they had a job, they would be envied. And that's what I did. Uh, I did do... Uh, a jury foreman on the the TV uh, mock-up for the Defenders. Wow. Uh, played a jury foreman, but it never amounted to anything. Didn't you end up, uh, one of, wasn't one of your first performances on a Studio One? That's it. Oh, that was it. Well, you know, Jimmy Garner uh, played a silent juror in Inherit the Wind. That's how he, he got uh, started. When when did you feel, I mean, at that time, I mean, you're obviously an extremely stubborn, determined human being, and it didn't look like you were about to give up, but it must have been hard to keep going. Did you ever think you were going to stop? No. No, I never had any doubts. I, I, I felt a pack of wolves was biting at my ass, but then. Were... <laughs> what? Okay. So when? When was the time? When was the time? You, you, you got a, a, a couple of roles that made you feel like, holy smoke, I'm really good at this, and I'm going to stick to it. No, I would, I would say that if it weren't for Alex Gordon, who cast for CBS, and for Marion Doherty, who did all of the Burt Reynolds, Burt Reynolds, Burt Reynolds, Burt, Scott, I forget who it was, she did the casting. For Route 66 and Naked City. And uh, if it weren't for her, I would have dropped off the charts. Okay, do, you, do, you, do you remember what year that might have been? No, that would have been middle 60s, early 60s? Oh, before that. In the 50s? 57, I would say. Wow. And I was, I was in three pennies from uh, like 53, 53 to, uh, I got married in 59 to my beautiful wife, Nancy. And uh, we came to California in 61. In, uh, well, a year after you got married, 
didn't you appear on Broadway with Jack Lemmon? Yeah. And what was that play? Now, did you feel you're on Broadway with Jack Lemmon? Did you feel like, now I've made it? No, because I thought the production was threatened every minute of the day. And it didn't last long. It had Albert Decker. It had Jack Lemmon. It had James... uh, James... Good English actor. Uh, I can't remember. Uh, what was your, what was your fr- the first movie role that you had? I did a uh, uh, kind of under five uh, where I played a mafioso of some Played that a lot. Didn't you appear? I think in one of uh, a Presley film called. Kid Galahad. When you when you came to California, yeah. uh, and then what was it like working with Elvis? And how big a role did you have in that film? I uh, <clears throat> I played his. Uh, that, that was a, a remake of. Um, Kid Galahad. Yes, it was. And uh, I played uh, a um, uh, a cop. No, no. I played his manager, I think it was. And uh, he was always uh, threatened. But he, he was a good guy. No, no, no doubt about it. When I when I uh, was in uh, California and Los Angeles in the fifties, I was a mailboy at Paramount when he when Hal Wallace first brought him there. And I must tell you, he couldn't have been nicer. I mean, I was just a kid, but he was so friendly to me. He was friendly to everyone, and it was always sir and madam. I when he was really sweet. Now in sixty six, I think you end up what should have been a monster break for you. Becoming an adversary, I think the movie was called El Dorado. Yeah. And who did you play and who was the star? John Wayne. What else? What did John Wayne and uh, and, uh, uh, Robert Mitchum? And and what was Wayne like? And uh, let me ask you this question because... You have a wonderful history of being involved with minority causes, uh, libertarian causes, uh, causes that uh, promote the welfare. Mostly they identify you as a Democrat. Uh, Over the years, uh, John Wayne went the other way. Did, Did you and he have any kind of relationship at all other than being in that movie? Grudging adversaries, I would say, was was our relationship. Now, we come to the the, the thing that uh, you you are obviously most famous for. You, I mean, aside from the fact that you are the only actor to ever receive seven Emmy Awards, and you became the linchpin to me for the Mary Tyler Moore show. Now, most of the time you're playing heavies and gangsters and mafiosa. So how did the part of Lou Grant end up in your hands? Sheer talent. (laughs) You obviously, now they might've had somebody else and you you couldn't have been the only actor auditioning for it. Well, Gavin McLeod, uh, came in after me, and he said, uh, and he himself said he thought he'd be more right for Murray, the the writer, rather than Lou. And uh, I I thank him for helping clear the way. Uh, they instructed me to come back and read it a certain way. I had no idea what they were talking about. But I tried it their way, and they laughed. The producers, Alan Burns and 
James Brooks. And they said, read it just that way when you come back to read with Mary. And so I did. I tried to emulate it as best I could. And uh, I found out a couple of years later that she said to them after I left the room, are you sure? Uh, wow. Is it that good? Well, you, you said earlier that you weren't that enamored of Second City because they, they Nichols and May were doing improv and they were doing comedy, and you had hadn't had a background of comedy, and yet you were absolutely so perfect as Lou Grant in the foil for that cast. Well, you were the foundation of that show. Uh, we were all a foundation. We were all the glue. And Mary was the biggest pot of glue in the world. But uh, the writers, the writers is what created that show. And fortunately, we were all meldable, all pliable. And you are absolutely right, because without writers, there are no actors. And of all the artists in the world, writers are the ones I admire the most. And what upsets me a lot about Turner Classic Movies, they almost, if you look at the what shows are coming up, unless it's Shakespeare or unless it's Patty Shayevsky, you never see the name of the writer, which I find offensive. And the writing was brilliant. Now, a few years later... Again, you get the opportunity to play Lou Grant, but not as a comedy, but in that wonderful hour drama. And I think you're the only actor in history who won an, an Oscar for both a comedy character and an acting, a, a drama character. That show was a wonderful show. And to me, I was heartbroken. I think it, it lasted three or four years and was canceled when it was successful. Yeah. Why was it canceled when it was successful? Who ran CBS at that time? Uh, I can't remember his name. An Irish name, I don't know. His wife loved Lou Grant, but uh, he found me too political. So they, uh, they put the kibosh on the show. Yes, but... Uh, <laughs> Too political in what way? I mean, you weren't outrageous. I mean, you don't. Yeah. I mean, they called Jane Fonda at the height of the Vietnam War. As a matter of fact, I was one of the few people to put both Jane Fonda and Muhammad Ali on the air to talk against the Vietnam War. But you weren't as well known then as a political activist. I mean, you were doing your best to improve the world and improve the country, but they hadn't. I mean, it wasn't well known amongst the population. So why would they kill the show that was watched? They were worried about the Monday night ratings and that uh, uh, what was going off the air. Something was going off the air and they didn't know how to fill that time. And they were worried that I would uh, put their ratings in the dump. So they canceled it. That's what they said. But uh, the guy who ran CVS at the time didn't like the fact I was too political off screen. Can, can you remember what you might have been doing politically then that might have been leaning to the left that bothered them? I I had been to Nicaragua. I had been to. I didn't get to Salvador, but I spoke out against the murdering going on in Salvador, and I condemned them, and I condemned them in a, in a, in a byway, the United States for, for schooling these guys who became the leaders of Latin America. Uh, the, they, they trained at the School of the Americans, which taught them to be severe in their in their governing of their countries. Well, Ed, you know, to be so involved with something like that is something that you're not taught. We don't see it in the movies. You're not taught it in school. I don't know if your parents had an influence on you. It is something that absolutely came from 
inside you. Uh, and were you always that way? I, I couldn't tell. I well, couldn't. you know, when I became, I, I mean, I loved watching you and everything you did. I mean, in Roots and in Rich Man, Poor Man, you improve everything that you touch. I mean, it's just, it's just like magic. But the thing that astounded me is your involvement after 911 now I, I really hate to bring it up because we're talking movies but uh, uh, this leads me to a movie in which you appeared and we'll get to that in a, in a second but um what was it I can tell you fr from my point of view I had questions about 911 which were very simple as somebody who was on television a lot decades on television, if something major happened in the news in America, you had four networks at the time, ABC, NBC, CBS, and Fox. If you wanted, you could tune into each one of those stations and you would see a camera different from every, the, all the other stations. But when 911 hit, I'd go to Fox or NBC, CBS. It was the same video that we were being played. And I thought, hold it. There's something very, very fishy about this. And then also the fact that they find a passport that's crisp and new on the sidewalk and a block and a half away, automobiles are burning. So that, and so I was so intrigued by the courage that you displayed. But what was it about you that attracted you and made you Question 911. Well, you know, we had a whole history of Vietnam and, and the plunging into Vietnam and the getting out of Vietnam and and uh, not supporting some of the measures the Vietnam government was taking and the, the, the murdering that was going on with Vietnam. So I was well prepared by the time 9-11 came along we lost 3,000 people in that episode uh, to question why did it happen? And I never heard any good answers. And, you know, well, I was first intrigued when I heard you were intrigued by it. When a documentary came out, I think it was called 911 Truth. Yeah. yeah. And I think I got it because you had recommended it. And it was, it, 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 tell us about that documentary and did you meet the documentary makers? I don't remember a thing about the documentary. All I remember is that everybody was asking questions about why were 3,000 killed? You know, how, how, how was it that, that uh, the Saudis were being trained as pilots and they didn't even know how to fly. Uh, I mean, questions like that, and nobody had an answer. I, I belong to the 9-11 committee, uh, a lawyer's committee for 9-11. And uh, we're about to uh, reach the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Do you know? Do, are you are you familiar with the name Dr. Judy Woods? No. Well, Dr. Judy Woods, and because of you, I saw the documentary, and then I heard about this woman named Dr. Judy Woods, who was indeed a scientist and a phys, uh, physicist. I mean, she had all kinds of accolades from the university, and she became suspicious for the same reasons that I did because there were the same visuals being shown on every network. So she looked into it scientifically and she wrote a book called Where Did the Towers Go? Yeah. And one of the things that she pointed out, I bought the book, it cost like $50, but what a what an unbelievable book. So I got the book and at the same time, I was fortunate enough to have a show. So I had her on twice as a guest. And i got to tell you something that she pointed out, which was so obvious because, you know, 
The, there was never a real investigation. Dr. Oh. Judy Woods was the only American to sue the federal government for not conducting a proper investigation, oh. urged on not by architects and engineers, but by the families of the victims. And that's why, and the courts were not here. Anyway, I live in Las Vegas. And since I've been here for 20 years, a half a dozen of these hotels have been demolished. And, and as a matter of fact, Bobby, Darren, and I were the closing act at the Sands Hotel when they demolished the Sands Hotel. But every time one of these buildings comes down, it leaves an impression and a reading on the Richter scale. When 911, when these two towers came down, which were a hundred times bigger than any hotels in Vegas. There is no record on a Richter scale of anything hitting the ground because it had been dustified. And what upset me more than that, what little steel that was left over was shipped to China. And it was like it was like Kennedy's limousine being destroyed in Detroit and they destroyed the possibility there might be bullet fragments. Now you're celebrating the 20th anniversary of 911 do you honestly believe that anything will ever be done i mean the house select committee on assassinations concluded there were conspiracies to murder both martin luther king and john kennedy they're cold cases at the justice department they were ordered to look into them and they don't look into them okay do you think honestly at in your heart anything will be done to look further into the darkness that is 911. Well, it depends on us and how much how much screening and and, uh, and pressure we put on. Uh, I, I suppose anything can change, and uh, I, I would hope that the observance of 911 on uh, uh, September 11th uh, will ignite some new form of pressure that uh, the government will have to cough up and admit. Yeah, you're you're so right. You know, uh, um, I'm upset as somebody who spent decades in the news and decades in television, not, of course, at your level, except for real people, which was really successful. And I lost that, by the way, for trying to tell Jim Garrison's story. And I lost my morning show in 1970 after I read Heritage of Stone. Well, the Clay Shaw trial, I was fired after that, but I never thought in any anything about it. But this brings me now to a film that I believe was probably the most important film ever made in this country. Before I got the opportunity to work with Mr. Garrison to do the definitive films on the assassination, I became his Boswell, his choice. Uh, but uh, before before that, um, oh, I want to get to the movie. The movie JFK. Uh, when uh, before I, I made these documentaries, I called the directors and producers I know in Hollywood and asked, "What's the most important movie ever made in this country?" And then uh, they would say, "Oh, Gone with the Wind," or they would say Orson Welles' uh, movie, uh, any other movie. And I said, no, because an important movie changes society that we live in. And the only place that happened was with JFK, that magnificent movie by Oliver Stone. I don't think he realized what was going to hit him as a result of that. But what happened is the pressure was so loud from the public that you hope for, they passed the Records Assassination Act. And two years ago in October, the files were to be released and they were never released. So that film, you appeared in it, and again, you were rock solid. What was the character you played? What happened? Did you get a call from Oliver to play this particular character? And what was it like making the movie and being a part of it? I, I played a, 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 and well, it was kind of murky as to whether my connection with the FBI was still extant or not. Yes, you uh, played Guy Bannister. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh, it implied FBI activity, influence, 
in 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 uh, structuring the events of the assassination. And your feelings about being in in, in the film? Did you have any doubts about being in the film? Did you ever wonder about it? I mean, Oliver is a brilliant fi filmmaker. I, he made a, probably one of the best political films made in this country called El Salvador with yeah. James Woods. And and the movie, it's just, JFK is wonderful as as were you. What are your, what are your thoughts now about that film and nothing ever being done about that case either? Well, I, I think... What, what, where we find America now is, for the first time, a mass. Uh, June 6th shows what people can be led to, even though wrongly, in terms of revolting and challenging the uh, establishment. Uh, I, I thought they were wrong there, but at the same time, I feel that the handling of 9-11 stunk. And I think that the truth and the liars that occurred in terms of manipulating the, 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 the bomb people. The, well, you the, know, the thing I find a little disturbing now, what? watching every talking head on television, everything on the internet, everybody is talking about the fall of Afghanistan. To yeah. me, it is not the fall of Afghanistan. It is obviously another, since Cuba, since El Salvador, since Vietnam, since Iraq, it is another falling of the dreadful, god-awful, inhuman, imperialistic, warmongering, and the that Eisenhower warned us about in 63 before he turned the country over to John Kennedy. That's where the failure is. And you know what? Look at it this way. As horrible as the Taliban are, if they get too outrageous, the people will get rid of them. Listen, we got rid of the British. Mao Zedong got rid of Chiang Kai-shek. Ho Chi Minh got rid of us, thank God. And they're doing better now that we are gone. So you're right. It's got to be something that will unite the people. But the really sad thing is, Ed, people are social creatures and they like to be united behind somebody. And it seems like when anybody pops up, look at Ralph Nader was could have been, a, I think, a wonderful choice as a president. And he was arrested when he tried to break in and become one of the... Uh, one of the candidates in a debate, you know, when they hold these political date debates, that's not a public forum. That's a private company that puts these debates together. You know, in 1963, we had 1,500 different owners of media and Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton in the mid nineties signed the communications act, which turned 98% of our media into the hands of five or six monopoly corporations with a stroke of the pen, either Trump or Biden, whoever occupies that office can reverse it. And nobody has done it and nobody has even asked them to do it. So while you still have the hopes that hope, hopefully the people will do it, I am, I, I, you know, I, I, I hope you are absolutely right. Because there are parts of this country, and I mean the people in general, who are absolutely magnificent. And I went through hell and high water to become a citizen of this country because I loved Capra movies. And I loved Thomas Jefferson and Franklin and Thomas Paine, who was the intellectual founder of this country. And I absolutely love and admire and adore people like you. So I cannot thank you enough for being here with me today and i know you're on your way somewhere to get another award or something so let me say this to you i could not have become because i haven't said it for 50 years i could not have become a citizen of the united states had it not been for a trough 
private eye, Jewish private eye, who looked and sounded exactly like you in Los Angeles. His name was Abe Pelter. He lived out his dream when he retired and moved to Israel, where sadly he passed away. But he rescued me as a kid when I was in L.A. I got to become a citizen. And he taught me this. So in saying goodbye to you and good luck to you, and we're going to talk again. Let me say this and see if I say it right. Did I say it right? Okay. Tell the audience what I just said. Oh, what? Tell the audience. Okay, I I guess that was Hebrew. Because yeah. okay, so we'll tell the audience what it means. It means Happy New Year. Uh, well, actually, I think Abe told me it means God bless you and may you be written into the oh, Book of Life. Oh, he's he's really getting down to the gritty. I can't keep up with Abe. Yes, and, and you know what? Uh, my second favorite writer, aside from Mark Twain, was Ben Hecht. Uh, yeah. Just ben, wonderful. Oh, my God. He wrote the uh, greatest autobiography called The Child of the Century. But to yeah. me, he said the greatest thing about the Jews. He said the Jews are the yeast in the bread of civilization that cause it to rise. It's a good way of putting it. Isn't that a wonderful way of putting it? And you are absolutely wonderful, Ed. Please thank Lisa. She's a doll. And I hope that you, in the next couple of months, I hope you have time to come back and be with us again. I'd love to. Oh, Ed, you're, you're a dear. I'd love to kiss you on that bald head. Okay, I will see you later. Get out there and get those awards. Keep the peace. Yes, I mean, indeed. Keep the peace. Thanks again, Ed. Thank you. Ah, you are wonderful. You are just a treasure. And Stu Shostak is one of your biggest fans next to me. More wonderful than I. Ah, yeah. Ah, you, you, are, you are a gem. It's exactly 1.30. I promised Lisa that we'd have you out of here by 1.30 so you okay. could go do your next uh so go to it, Ed. And again, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you very much yourself, Mr. Right. Barber. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I've got to tell you something very, very strange. I do not believe in telepathy or extrasensory perception, although I've seen it demonstrated perfectly and truthfully by two people. Peter Herkos, the very famous, world's most famous psychic in the 60s, and my wife, who predicted exactly the day and the moment her father would die. Something very strange happened to me when I was interviewing Ed. About four minutes before the end of the interview, I had this very strong feeling that I would never see him again. And I had no idea what to say to him at that time when all of a sudden up popped in my mind a Hebrew Yiddish phrase that I had not uttered in 70 years. It's a Hebrew and Yiddish blessing, which you just heard. And in retrospect, I'm so glad that happened because... Ed went to his grave listening to the words that his mother and father must have spoken to him often. And, you know, his last wish, amazingly enough, was not about himself or his health. It was about America. And he hoped, as you heard, that one day Americans would become so outraged that they would demand and get a real investigation into 911. In our documentary, The American Media and the Second Assassination of President John F. Kennedy, President Carter says loudly and clearly, America will never be right again unless we get to the bottom of what happened to John Kennedy. A month later, two people were arrested in Los Angeles 
for trying to assassinate President Jimmy Carter. And so he was silenced forever. The assassination of John Kennedy is proven by and solved by Jim Garrison is a cold case in the Justice Department, along with the murder of Martin Luther King. You get to the bottom of that, and you get to the bottom of 911. And I've been thinking hard and long about Ed's last wish. I have just done a YouTube to honor the memory of Ed Asner, Jim Garrison, and President John F. Kennedy. And it is called The USA and JFK's Only Hope. It will air soon. And until then, we'll see you in two weeks in another Talking Movies. And until then, remember just one thing. Because if you can, it'll prove you probably don't have Alzheimer's. So till then, good luck. <laughs> Look, miss, would you try answering the questions as I ask them? Yes, Mr. Grant, I will, but it does seem that you've been asking a lot of very personal questions that don't have a thing to do with my qualifications for this job. You know what? You got spunk. <laughs> Oh, yes. I hate spunk. <laughs> Tell you what, I'll try you out for a couple of weeks, see if it works out. Oh. If I don't like you, I'll fire you. Right, right. You don't like me, I'll fire yes. you.